We're in, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 23, and let me read, we're going to read verses 8 through 17 this morning. Um, so let's read that, and then we'll pray, and we'll get into it. These are the names of David's mighty warriors, Josheb, Bashabeth, a, uh, good night with, good luck with this, a Tokamonite, I think that was pretty good. He was chief of the three. He raised his spear against eight hundred men whom he killed in one encounter. I know, I know. He's the, you know, we have a word for that in our culture that I will not say. Next to him was Eliezer, son of, of uh, Dodai, the Ahoathite, and one of the three mighty warriors. He was with David when they taunted the Philistines gathered at Pastamim for battle. Then the Israelites retreated, except for Eliezer. Eliezer stood his ground and struck down the Philistines till his hand grew tired and froze to his sword. You guys ever, you guys ever been, okay, those of you that have worked with a hammer for a long extended period of time or done yard work with a hoe for a long, you know, your hand, the muscles get, um, they really, it doesn't freeze, but they, it gets stiff around that tool. I think that's probably what's going on here. He's just slashing and cutting and fighting and doing his thing to where it's just, you know, it, the muscle is just there. Um, same word in our culture that I won't say. The Lord, the, the Lord brought about a great victory that day. The troops returned to Eliezer, but only to strip the dead. In other words, the work is done, done. All they had to do was search for loose change. Next to him was Shema, son of, son of Aji, the Hararite. When the Philistines banded together at a place where there was a field full of lentils, Israel's troops fled from them, but not Shema. He took his stand in the middle of this field, and he defended it and struck the Philistines down, and the Lord brought about a great victory. Save the lentils. Save the lentils, that's right. We must defend the lentils. During harvest time, three of, the, three of the 30 chief warriors came down to David at the cave of Adullam, while a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of, of Rephaim. And at that time, David was in the stronghold, and the Philistine garrison was at Bethlehem. And David longed for water and said, oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. So... The three mighty warriors broke through the Philistine, uh, Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem, and carried it back to David, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. But such were the exploits of the three mighty warriors. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would show us um, your word and what it means for us today. <clears throat> In our culture, we, we get a little skirmish when it comes to warriors and violence and glorifying violence and those types of things. <clears throat> Lord, would you show us your warrior heart and what it means to be a warrior, what it means to fight for you, what it means to live a certain kind of warrior kind of life. Would you give us that? And may your spirit guide us in this study. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> okay, we have just 
entered this really brilliantly structured epilogue of the books of First and Second Samuel. In the, in the Hebrew Bible, this is one book. Samuel's one book. We divided it into two books, or not we, but when the Septuagint, or the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was created, was written in about 300 B.C. or so, it was divided into two books. And um, it's pretty obvious that chapter 21 through chapter 24 is a brilliantly structured epilogue or conclusion of the book. It takes stories out of chronological order, and it's formed chiastically, like you can see on the screen. Last week, we, um, in other words, it uses parallel stories from the first and from the last to teach us a lesson, and it works in towards the middle, middle, towards the kernel, that shows us what David's last words were in David's psalm. Last week, we looked at the failure of Saul, paralleled with the failure of David in chapter 24. This week, we're going to look at David's mighty men. And then next week, and maybe the next two weeks, we'll be studying David's psalm, which is basically a memoir of his life, and then his final words uh, towards the middle. And it's pretty obvious that, well, this was a common way that ancient Near Eastern writers, writers organized their material. It's a, um, we find it all over the ancient Near East um, writings. And uh, it's obvious that this is the way the author was wanting us to view this material, to work our way in. Today we're looking at um, a couple of stories. We're going to focus in on one story um, that show David's support system. And unlike the first nine chapters of 2 Samuel that show David, um, David as a victorious warrior, these stories, the one we'll focus on today, and if you want to read the other one in your own time, focus particularly on David's vulnerabilities and on his weaknesses, his insecurities, his um, where he needed support from the men that were around him. Um, and to get at that, I want to isolate this really beautiful story in verses 13 through 17 because I think it shows us at least four things. Um, we're going to briefly comment on four points. One, we're going to see a very vulnerable side of David and how God used his loyal friends to encourage him. We're talking about a team, you know? Um, uh, as God anoints a leader, but around that leader is a team. Even Jesus, you know, one of the, he was anointed as the Messiah, and one of the first things, I mean, you can't get a chapter in before he starts calling his disciples to follow him, okay? Um, so, no, in, in the Bible's language, um, there really isn't an idea of celebrity. We kind of read that onto the text because we live in a celebrity culture. So we like to look at David as this, um, this shining star above the rest. Well, I love at the end of the book, uh, the writer puts his vulnerabilities and shows, shows a team that God brought up around him to encourage him and to encourage the nation. We're going to get at that today. Secondly, we see David's great gratitude and his leadership as he poured these things out before the Lord. What a beautiful, some really beautiful language. Then we're going to look at the idea of a warrior king in the Bible. And then finally, we're going to um, bridge the gap between them and us and find out what it means to live a warrior life. What does it look like to live the life of a warrior? And I want to argue that we need that spirit more than ever. Okay? Um, but we'll see the balance in that as well. Um, but before I expound on those three points, or those four points, excuse me, um, it's a, you're not going to get any of them unless I back up and give you some context. This story is really easy to misread. 
It's really easy to misinterpret, and it's really a confusing story at first blush, unless you can back up and put some context around it. Um, first of all, where did these mighty men come from? Well, in the book of Samuel, when Saul was king, he began to realize really quickly that through his failure and through Samuel's prophecy that God had anointed another man to succeed him. And this, of course, was David. And this made an already jealous, insecure king more jealous and more insecure, in fact, even murderous, trying to um, first covertly trying to kill David, find a way to um, make him have an accident, sending him out to battle in certain precarious, very dangerous situations, hoping that the Philistines would win other ways. Finally, his jealousy and his rage just absolutely consumed him, and he just began to outright hunt for David's life considered him the number one enemy of the state. And of course, you know the story. David had to flee for his life. He had to run into the wilderness in order to get away from Saul to preserve his life. And when he was in the wilderness hiding, men and other kind of vagabond, marginalized, disenfranchised characters began to amass and come around David and rally behind him. About 400 men or so. We're talking about... Um, Criminals, people in debt to the state, or people falsely accused by the state, and, and, uh, or what have you. These kinds of guys began to rally themselves, about 400 of them, around David. And out of those guys, David um, began to train them. And he began, he began to train them to be military warriors, um, to be able to fight in a, in a very elite kind of a way. David was an elite warrior himself, and he began to take interest. And eventually, when Saul died and David became king, these became the men that David installed as his military commanders, his administration, his generals over, over Israel's army. There was about... 400 of them, but out of those elite warriors were 30 or 40 of the most battle-hardened, well-trained military men who became the Giborim. That's the, that's the Hebrew word for the title, the mighty men. This would be like our buzzword, SEAL Team 6 or something, or actually it'd be the teams, SEAL team, and then within those 30 or 40 guys were three. And they, in the Hebrew, you can... Um, it's a, it's a proper noun. They're, they're the three. In fact, in some of your translations, if you read it, th the three is capitalized. Because they were known as out of the 40, out of the 30, there was the three. And they were particularly known for their mighty exploits, their acts of valor, and the, you know, the, the stories that we just read from verse 8 on were particular stories that turned the tide of war. You know, you've got Joshub, who um, he fought 800 men with his spear and won. And that, the idea is that rallied the troops. It infused courage into them, and they were able to support him. It, they got their courage back from this. You've got Shema, who everyone else left but him, and he stayed his ground and pulled out his sword, and he fought through these Philistines to the point where Israel, uh, the, the fleeing army said, we should go back and support him. But by that time they got back, the job was done. He was just that much of a 
BA. I mean, that's what I want to say. He was just that incredible of a warrior. And his, you know, his sword, his hand is stuck to his sword. You've got um, the final guy, I think Shema, who has a similar story. And these guys became just kind of the... Um, paragons of an inspiration for this warrior spirit within Israel. And they became the captains. Now, um, in this particular story that we're in, um, most scholars believe that this takes place shortly after David had just become king over a unified Israel. So not just... um, not just over Judah, but also unified Israel in the south, and certainly after he had established Jerusalem as his, as his capital city. The idea is, is that the Philistines wanted to attack him quick. This new administration had just come up. This Davidic kingdom had just come up. They're weak. They're um, young. Uh, Israel still fractured from this transfer of power from Saul to David, and the Philistines are thinking, now's the time to strike and nip this thing in the bud before it gets some momentum and gets some power. So they strike. You see the Valley of Rephaim there, which is basically right down the middle of Israel. Their attempt is to divide Israel into kind of like a bi-nation, dividing them again north and south cutting off their unity in in the middle. And they penetrated so deep into Israel that they made it to Bethlehem, the text tells us, which is just a few miles away from Jerusalem, the capital city, which means David had to flee again. Think of this. You, You won't understand this story unless you think of this, unless you understand this. David has already been on the run for years. He's been promised to be this king. In fact, more than that, He's been promised that one of his descendants would be such a renowned king that his kingdom would, would be ever, an everlasting kingdom and would radically alter world history forever. Of course, we know that to be Jesus. David is hanging on to this promise. It's probably what's keeping him going in the wilderness as he's running from Saul. Finally, Saul, you know, he had several opportunities to kill Saul on his own. David doesn't because he's a man of character. He says, I'm not going to touch the Lord's anointed. That's God's job, not mine. God installed him as king. God will uninstall him as king and put me there when a time is right. Finally, that happens. David finally becomes king, but even that is treacherous because there's this war between north and south. There's Saul's descendants and David, and he tries this diplomatic approach, but a war breaks out. Finally, there's this unification. Finally, David has a capital. Finally, all these things happen, and then the Philistines attack again, and David, it gets so bad and so out of his control that he has to leave again. They've got to go back to their old HQ, the cave of Adullam, where they're so familiar. Let's go back there because we know it. We can set up there. We can hole up there. We can launch operations from there. It's kind of, you know, like his underground bunker, so to speak. But how discouraged must, must he have been? On top of that, um, this little time stamp that the text gives us about um, in verse 13, during harvest time. It's also a subtle tell to the gravity of the situation of this Philistine invasion. Um, Apparently the Philistines decided, or maybe it was just by chance, but they decided to attack right at harvest time, effectively cutting Israel off from, from their food. This would have caused potentially widespread starvation and 
inevitably, this new administration, the kingdom of David, would topple. It was a very, very desperate, discouraging situation, to say the least, to a brand new king who's finally taken up the promise that he thought was his, and now he's got to go on the run again. What must he have been thinking? Well, we know what he was thinking. But only after considering all of that will will we be able to appreciate David's predicament and this vulnerable statement in verse 15 where he says, David longed for water and said, Oh, that someone would get me a drink of water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem. Okay. Only with that context, only with that backstory, can you understand what a vulnerable statement this is. It's absolutely freighted with emotional and psychological stress from David. He's looking for a nostalgic place to drink. He's not just after water. He is not thirsty, uh, physically speaking. In fact, we know this because David used to hole up in the cave of Adullam for years on the run from Saul. They had water. We also know that there were several wells for them to draw on around. They had access to water. They were bringing him water. Now, David is longing for something specific that I think we can all long for. Also, the idea of thirst is a theologically freighted word, if you've been around the Bible. It describes the human condition, that we all thirst. It's the idea that we, we long for something that we know we should be or that we know we should experience, some kind of an abundant, satisfying um, slake of thirst that once we get there, we'll be so fulfilled, we'll finally come into who we were meant to be. And this thirst, the Bible will, will say, is driving mankind forward. It's what gets you out of bed in the morning. It's what's behind your drive for things like maybe like water, behind your drive for advancement, for promotion, or for money, or whatever. There is a drive in you for, okay, this will fulfill me. This will make me feel safe. Finally, I can relax. If I only get to this, well, then I'll be able to really be me. I'll be confident. If I can just, be, or it's, if I can just act like them or be like this or be like that, then I can live the good life. I can have what I know I'm meant to have. The Bible would d- describe this as a thirst in your soul. Uh, parents, we thirst through our children. If I can get noble to realize this that I never got to realize well then I'll feel a little bit better you know all of those things I don't want I don't want him to go through the same things I went through there's this drive in us that fires our actions why the Bible would say because mankind is thirsty we're thirsty and like thirst like when we drink water you know Jesus said um, to the woman at the well in John chapter 4 the water, this water that you drink of, of this well, you're going to drink it, and you're, you're going to be satisfied for a little bit, but you're going to be thirsty again. That's the thing. This is the, this is the Bible's description of mankind. We go to these wells to drink, and yet it's just not enough. Here, David, he finally got the kingdom, and then, he, and then it slips through his fingers. He's thirsty. He's been out in the wilderness going for a goal that's been promised to him, and now he's lost it again, and everything looks precarious, and he's probably tired of things being precarious. He just needs some stability. He's thirsty, right? You, you see what it's saying here? He's thirsty. If I can just learn more, if I can just be more fit, if I can lose weight, if I can, whatever it might be. I mean, 
All you have to do is look on YouTube at all the, all the videos that are most liked. Social media is driven on this. Why do, we, do, do people have millions of followers? Because they've tapped into a thirst. <clears throat> it feeds off discontentment, doesn't it? Social media. It, it makes you feel like your life sucks. You know, you see some lady that just bought a coconut farm in Maui and they're living her best life and doing Pilates every day and whatever it is that she's doing and, and she's like this perfectly fit person and she's, you know, seems so peaceful and, and wonderful and you think to yourself, I am missing it. I need to buy a coconut farm. That's what I need. What, is, what, is, what are those channels doing? They're tapping into a thirst. What, what has advertising been doing for, for you know, hundreds of years now? Tapping into a thirst. If you have this product, you won't, just, you won't just, like if you get my toothpaste, you won't just have better teeth. You'll be this kind of a person. They show a model with perfect teeth, right? If you drink this beer, this is the Super Bowl commercials. If you notice the people drinking the beer on the Super Bowl commercials are just like, just shredded. They've got these six packs and they're young and they're like golden tan and they're just like, you never see on a Super Bowl this guy with a beer gut who can barely make it out of his chair, like pulling, sucking back another whatever it is, right? It's saying, if you want the good life, if you want to be like this person and party and be Mr. Popular and all of these things or be like Snoop Dogg, if you want to be like, then Drink this beer. See, that's what, what, what does it do? It's tapping into a thirst. Some even outright use the slogan, there's a hunger inside you, Snickers Bar says, and it won't go away until you... And cut. That's how it works. And we go, oh man, okay. There's a thirst. David is experiencing a deep, profound, human kind of thirst. He's feeling parched in his soul. I think he's thirsting for home. I think he's weak and vulnerable. He's from Bethlehem. And I think he's thinking, man, I just want to go home. I just want to take my ball and go home. <laughs> Have you ever been there? You try so hard. You're working, working, working. And then something else goes wrong. And there's a point where you just go, man, I just want to go home. I just want to rest. I'm tired. The kind of tired you can't sleep off. You know, I'm just tired to my core. I think he's vulnerable. I think he's weak. He receives these incredible promises in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Like Abraham before him, he's promised this kingdom that would alter the course of human history. But yet here he is in the cave again. So, in verse 16, the three mighty men, they somehow overhear this, I, I don't know if it was a private kind of sigh that David kind of had to himself. Man, if I could just get some water from Bethlehem. You know, I don't know what it was, but they overhear it or they perceive this need. And the mighty men broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well near the gate of Bethlehem and carried it back to David. Man, I wish there was more detail here. Or detail here. This is so annoyingly uh, brief. I mean, think, think, let me read this. So the three men, it's just so... Concise. They broke through the Philistine lines, drew water from the well. It's like, you know, they went to the store, grabbed a gallon of milk, came back and gave it to David. It, 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 I, here's what we can know. 
These three men would have heard this sigh from David's heart and they would have grabbed their weapons. They would have geared up. They would have talked about it. They probably would have exited quietly because probably a lot of other men would follow or maybe the morale of the men that was already low would, if they thought they were deserting. So they probably went out quietly. The gate of Bethlehem, uh, the gate of Bethlehem was on top of a hill. We know that. And so, um, and we also know that a garrison, of, a garrison of Philistines would have been at least 20 men, probably more, 20 or more men. So these men, they come into Bethlehem and they would have drawn their weapons and they would have fought their way uphill, outnumbered, outgunned. They would have fought their way uphill through these 20 guys, through the gate. Probably two of them would have been fighting off the, the Philistines while one of them poof, takes the skin of water and starts filling it. <laughs> the Philistines probably were thinking, all that for, for, for water when there's other wells out there. It would have been a very confusing, no doubt, for the Philistines. But they're fighting, they get the water, and then instead of like freeing Bethlehem, they, they leave. They fight their way back out. They leave and they do this incredible thing and they bring this water to David and say, we overheard you and here you go. You know, I can just imagine blood on their uniforms, their swords bloody, maybe they're sweating, there's bruises and they come and they say, my Lord, this is for you. We heard that you had a need. We see that you're thirsty. Here you go. They get the water, they fight their way back. Now, can you imagine the effect First of all, how encouraging this would have been. Can you imagine the effect that this would have had on David's army? Their demoralized army. David is, this, their new king is on his heels and he's on the run. Their new king has had to abandon the capital city. This new king that they thought would make Israel even greater than the previous king Saul he is now, this new king that has fought Philistines and won before, now he's on his heels, he's running. The army, no doubt, is demoralized, but they see three guys do this incredible, courageous act, and no doubt this would have shot like lightning through Israel's army. They would have been like, okay, if three guys can do that, I'm going to do my bit too. We're, we're not going to go down without a fight. We're going to go out swinging. In fact, yeah, you can just feel the electricity going through David's army. And, of course, through David himself. At this point, David, I think, as he pours this out before the Lord, I think this is David's way of saying, my thirst has been satisfied. You are on my side, God. You are going to fulfill your promises. If I've got people around me like this, what can stop me? If you've given me these mighty men, not of just military prowess and valor and professionalism, but of loyalty and love for me, belief in me, if you've done that, we're going to be just fine, guys. We're going to be okay. In fact, I think, in my opinion, I think the reason this particular story is recorded in our Bibles is because this was the turning point of the war. I think this was the rally cry that got David and his men back up again, geared up again, recalibrated, reloaded, and back to take what God had given, the, given to them, the land that he had given them, the promise that he had given them with new vigor and new encouragement. 
Number one, I want to focus on how God uses each other to remind us of his promises, especially when we're down. When the sigh of our hearts come out, when we, see, when we realize, man, I'm doubting those promises. I want to hang on, but now I'm not so sure. Let me, you know, life all, life, so here we are. We have this idea, all of us, especially if you're a, a follower of Jesus, you have a promise of God on your life to flourish, that you are becoming more, you are being transformed more and more into the image of Christ. And sometimes the most discouraging moment for Christians at least, but I would say this is a human thing, but especially for Christians is when we look at who Jesus is and who he's, who he's made us to be. Jesus is the ultimate human, therefore I think he is what we're all called to be. When we look at that and we look in the mirror and we see the disparaging distance between the two, we can sometimes want to take our ball and go home. Want to take our ball and go home. We can sometimes want to say, okay, this isn't working. I'm discouraged. I know that I want to be a certain way. I know that God is calling me to be a certain way. I know that he is, wants to make the but I'm not cut out for this life. The Christian life, let's just be real, is difficult. Doable, but difficult. It's a difficult life, especially in a place like Seattle, especially living in our own skin, right? And we can get easily discouraged, easily fall on our heels. And what the, the church, especially in America, I think is in danger of is an individualistic spirit in which we can no longer follow others as they follow Christ. We were just talking about this in our elders meeting the other day, how biblically the Bible speaks in terms of a collective communal type of an idea. That in other words, you are as hot for the Lord as your community around you. Every Paul must have a Timothy. And every Timothy must have a Paul. Right? In other words, I should be able to come to my church and be excited to go to my church because there are other men and women just like me, frail just like me, but that are following hard after Jesus and doing mighty exploits. Mighty exploits. That we should be able to go, okay, man, if she can do it, what am I doing in this cave sulking? I can do it. I'm going to follow them. They're just like me. I can start practicing the way. And by golly, I might not be able to fight through a garrison of, Phil of Philistines tomorrow, but maybe in a year I will. We've all got to start somewhere. What, uh, in our elders meeting, one of our, our elders, Jameson, I'm sure he wouldn't mind sharing this, was talking about how he began to flourish and grow. And it was because he started following Paul Shaner. He started following Paul Shaner. He, he began, he saw, okay, there's a guy that I can follow. He started hanging out with him. And he talks to him. He calls him when he's in trouble. He calls him when he's hurt. They call each other when they're hurt. They talk to each other. They're real with each other. And they're flourishing. They're not perfect. But they're genuine and they're following Jesus. And they're mighty in spirit. They have a hearty soul. What's the, is it, is he in a celebrity individualistic culture, we look at people like that and we think, oh, that's untouchable. 
right? We, you know, if you, in my day, I'm sound, wow, that sounded old. I promised that I would never say that phrase, and there I, there I went and did it. When I was a kid, Michael Jordan was the thing. You know, today, people are like, um, who's the other guy? The guy that they think is great? LeBron James. The kids are like, LeBron James is the GOAT. And I'm like, have you guys heard of Michael Jordan? And they're like, Michael who? And I'm like, are you, are you really? Michael Jordan, he, what, he captured our imagination. I mean, he, he had this. If, there's a documentary out right now about Michael Jordan, by the way. He had this ability, and they interviewed Magic Johnson and other prominent players at the time, and they said there was a sense that if Michael Jordan touched the ball, he could score from wherever he was at if he wanted to. Like, that's how threatening his presence was on the court. He could, if he had it, and even if his back was to it, they knew he could make a shot, and it's likely it will go in. That's how threatened he was. Now, I look at guys like that, and we think, I think, I'll never be like that, right? Or we look at all these other, we live in a celebrity culture. We see these paragons of what we want to be, and we think, okay, they're the gods, we're the normal people, we'll never be this celebrity type of a thing. Where the Bible says, no, they're, we're all a team of people being conformed into the image of Christ, but we'll, we cut ourselves off from that process when we don't um, exist in a community, not just within a community at church, but in a community kind of mindset. With a community mindset. What is a mindset of a community? It is this. People are watching me. It matters what I do. That is a very, uh, that's a really uh, antithetical concept in our culture. Our culture says, do what you want as long as it doesn't hurt somebody else. The Bible would say, everything you do affects everybody else. Everything you do. Right? I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm tired. This is um, kind of the boomer generation, I think. I'm tired, and I don't want to go to work, but I'm not really sick. So I'm going to go to work anyway, because if I don't, the team, the team, will, I, the team needs me. Now... As we get more and more progressively individualistic, it is, oh, I get benefits for not going at all. I'll just call a sick day. Right? So, I mean, it's well documented now. America's work ethic is going down because of a more... In the Bible would say, no, we, all have, we, we are a society and we affect one another. Um, Peter talks about the church like bricks in a wall. And how one is supporting others and how others are supporting the one. We need each other. So this is, point number one, this is a call to have a warrior spirit and follow high, hard after Jesus for the sake of those around us. When you're weak, do you have people that you can go to that you admire their faith? You see that they're just men and women, but you admire their walk with the Lord. And can you follow that person? We tell our kids this. Be careful who you hang out with, right? Be careful who you follow. You will become like who your best friend is. Because, I mean, it's not popular, but it's, it's, there's data now. We, we are most influenced not by the books we read, not by the, 
by our own thoughts. We are most influenced by the people we are with, hands down, like, like overwhelmingly by our parents, by our close friends. That's why church is so important. And I think that's why in America, the church is honestly right now on its heels, on its heels, disintegrating. It's not, it's not being the salt of the earth. It's not being a light on the hill. Part of it is because we have, in, we have become like our culture in an individualistic kind of a way. Nobody in here wants, wants others in here to know how we're really doing with Jesus. Do we feel safe sharing our, our struggles with each other? And maybe we're not to that place yet. I'm not saying, you know, if you're not feeling safe, I'm not saying to do it anyway. I'm saying we need to become a place where we can go and say, yeah, you know, I'm going to be real with my friends. I'm going to be real. And though they might have some strong words for me, I know they'll always love me and I know they have my best interest at heart and they're going to they're make decisions for my thriving and through my, for my growth as I would for them. They've got my back. They've got my back. Number one is this, a warrior spirit, a warrior mindset unifies a community. It inspires a community. What you do matters. How you, do, how you live your life, your character, not just what you do on the outside, but your character matters. That means the quality in which you do things, the quality in which you parent, the quality in which you are married, the quality by which you come and serve on Sunday, or the quality by which you go to work. It, it matters. Two people might be doing the same things at a job, showing up every day, working just as hard. One person is doing it for the American dream, to get more money, to be promoted selfishly. Another person is doing it to be a good steward and because they're genuinely inter interested in the people around them. You can tell the difference of the quality of that kind of work. Every boss knows it. But look, notice also David's great leadership and gratitude here. Look what it says. There's this, again, if you don't know the context, this is really confusing. It says, but he refused to drink it. Instead, he poured it out before the Lord. Far be it from me, Lord, to do this, he said. Is it not the blood of men who went at the risk of their lives? And David would not drink it. What is, do, what is David doing here? Well, if you don't know the backstory, this seems pretty rude, actually. These men risk their lives. They go to get him this drink. If, if you're thinking that he's just thirsty, you know, and he just, and he's, we know Bethlehem has, has sweet water there. We know that historically. If he's just looking for like a particular brand of water that reminds him of his hometown and guys go and risk their lives to get, them, to get him this, his you know, hometown bottled water and he just goes out. I mean, the warrior's gonna be like, are you kidding me right now? Are you serious? But that's not what's going on here. First of all, he's realizing that this act of kindness was actually an answer to, of prayer to his heart. It was a gift from God. It was a gift from God. This is the only way the story makes any sense. Otherwise, it's just odd. 
But notice, the text doesn't just say that he poured it out. He poured it out as a drink offering to the Lord. Drink offerings in the Old Testament were offerings of gratitude. David is saying, what you've given to me through these men's sacrifice, I give back to you in utter gratitude. This gift is from you and from you alone. And I love David's leadership here. Because not only is he being grateful and is he showing his gratitude to God, not only is he, he, what he's doing is he's looking beyond the men. Again, this is not a celebrity culture. He's looking beyond these men and seeing that God is the one that supplied their gifts, their talents, um, their abilities, and he's showing the men that as well. In other words, David is saying, look, you did not choose to be six foot two and 250 pounds of pure muscle. You did not choose that. God gave you that. You did not choose to have the kind of brain that knows how to do war. God gave you that. You did not choose the kind of talents that you have. God gave you that. So you made a sacrifice, and I'm so grateful, but you need to understand, God gave you the ability to make that sacrifice. This is so, this is, um, this is so important because he is offsetting or bringing balance to the warrior culture that he himself has created. In the ancient Near East, Warrior culture was vital and was brutal. It was all about glorification. Uh, in fact, in other nations, when, other, when warriors did these very same kinds of acts, they were expecting to be glorified for it. But David refuses to glorify these men. He refuses. What is he doing? He made these warriors. He shaped them himself, but he's also bringing balance to them. He's saying, hey, I... I helped you with this. I trained you with this. But none of this is actually from you. And none of this is actually from me. This is a gift from God. He's putting balance into a war kind of culture, which I think is incredibly brilliant and unheard of in the ancient Near East. They would have been expected to be glorified, paid, legendary, immortalized as a little lower than the gods. But David doesn't do that. He pours it out and he thanks God. He looks beyond them and he simultaneously is teaching them to look beyond him. He poured it out before the Lord. In other words, you guys made a sacrifice not for me but for the Lord. This was for God. Don't celebritize me. Don't lift me up on a pedestal. I'll be really vulnerable with you guys. I think the Moses model is a big problem at least in our, day, in our time, in our day and age. The Moses model of church governance, for those of you that don't know, is actually what our church is famous for. <laughs> Calvary Chapel is famous for a Moses kind of model where there is one pastor, one guy, and Moses, and he goes, follow the metaphor, he goes up on, onto the mountain, he receives from God, and he brings the vision back down to the people and says, this is what we're doing. And then everyone follows the one guy. So this quickly becomes Mike's church. This quickly becomes, we're, we're here to support Mike. We've come to listen to Mike. We like his teaching. We like his music. We believe in him. We're here for him. He hears from God. We trust what he has to say, so we're going to follow him. The Moses model is wonderful in a lot of ways. It's worked in a lot of ways. For our day and age, I think it's got some problems. First of all, no one man except for Jesus was meant to put that much weight on their shoulders. This is why, in my opinion, why a lot of pastors are cracking. 
not just, for their, not just because of their own lack of character, which we all have lacks of character, let's be real, but because when you add tremendous weight and idolization and celebrityism, it's in the water, it's in the air. It's not like you're doing it on purpose. It just comes with the culture. You breathe it in, you breathe it out, and you tend to idolize someone. That's why we need more than one voice up here behind this pulpit. We need to turn the he into a we because the New Testament comes along and says, you're all Moseses now. Because of the greater than Moses, Jesus, we all now have access to the glory of God. So now that means Mike as, and the elders as the leaders of the church, we come to you and say, what's God's telling you? How can you go up the mountain into the presence of God? He's made a way for you. Hebrews, he's made the, the book of Hebrews, he's made the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. He's made a way for you. How can I help you move closer into the presence of God? How can I serve you? Like Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Peter says we are, all, we are a kingdom of priests. In the Old Testament, priests had exclusive access to the creator God. That's you. We all have access by the blood and broken body of Jesus into the, into the presence of God. Look beyond me. Look through me. How can I help you pour yourself out as an offering to God in this world? That is the kind of church, the, the kind of, I, think, I think that's the church that Jesus created it to be. Has God graciously used the Moses model? Yes. Has Calvary Chapel been used all over the world to make an amazing impact for the kingdom of God? Yes. I'm not denying that. I'm saying it's new, it's new wineskins and new wine now. We need to realize what's ours in the New Testament. We are a team. We are a community. We are following the way of Jesus together. And it will not work otherwise. You, you won't thrive or grow on my passion alone. It'll get old. Give it a month or two or a couple weeks or a year, whatever it is. At some point, Mike won't be enough for you to keep coming. And I wasn't meant to be. No one personality was meant to be. It's a we are following each other as we're following Jesus together. And that will ignite your soul. And that, quite frankly, is what we're going to head into when we start getting into the book of Matthew. We're going to look at the way of Jesus and we're going to see how we can follow him together as a community. He's leading his men to the Lord. He's saying, look beyond me as he looks beyond them. Finally, we see a warrior king. What's this story about? Not finally. I forget I have four points. I'm used to having three, but I have four. So almost finally. Don't get your hopes up. <laughs> I'm still me at the end of the day. Okay. Thirdly, we see a warrior king. What's the story about? Well, in a sentence, David's men hear the cry of David's heart and then it great risk to themselves, they brought him what he needed in order to be filled with the assurance that God had for him. I mean, if you want to just boil it into a sentence, there it is. David's discouraged. His men hear the cry of his heart. They risk themselves to contribute to the needs of his heart. And look, that is what this story is saying. That's a warrior's heart. That's a warrior's heart. 
And it's interesting that the Bible talks as much as we here in the modern world don't like it. The Bible is unapologetic for it. The Bible characterizes God as a warrior over and 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 over again. Uh, Exodus chapter 15, the song of Miriam when they, when they came out of out of, the, out, um, out of the Red Sea, uh, the first half of the book of Exodus, the main theme over and over again, repeated on the lips of the Israelites and on the lips of the Egyptians, is what? Who is Yahweh? Who is he? Remember in chapter 3, Moses says, who should I tell them that you are? When he goes there, the Israelites are like, yeah, we've heard of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but who is Yahweh. He goes to Pharaoh and he says, Yahweh says, let my people go. And Pharaoh interrupts him and says, who's Yahweh? Never heard of him. It's the theme throughout. When they come, when they come out, when he saves them, they come out of the, of the Red Sea. He, they, he splits the sea. They come out of it. They sing this song defining, they, they learned who Yahweh is by how he saved them. And here's what they say. This is the song. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has hurled into the sea. Now, for the first time in the book, if you've read Exodus, there's some real particular definition to the identity of God based on how he saves. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. The deep waters have covered them. They sank to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, Lord was majestic in power. Your right hand, Lord, has shattered the enemy. That's who he is. Um, here's my, one of my favorites. This is Isaiah 42, verse 13. The Lord will march out like a champion. Like a warrior, he will stir up his zeal with a shout. He will raise his battle cry and he will triumph over the enemies. Mike, Oh, come on. That's just the Old Testament. The Old Testament that was written in a warrior culture. He's just, he's just paying tribute to the culture that, that he's in to relate to those types of people. Okay. Revelation chapter 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one else knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood and his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which he strikes down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty and on his robe and on his thigh has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What? A, yeah, yeah, no more. What a, what a warrior. What a warrior. What do we have here in this warrior king? How do we see it here? Well, in our story... The men hear the cry of David's heart and they gear up and they break through the lines to get him what he needs, to get him the salvation to slake his thirst. And many, many years later, there's another David, the son of David, 
who hears the longing of the human heart. He hears what you need. He sees how dried up your soul is. He, he hears your despair that none of us perhaps have heard. And when you're alone, no one else hears how tired you are, the real you, the desperate cries. Why haven't I broken through this yet? How come I can't get a hold of this? How come I can't triumph? Or maybe I have triumphed, but how come I feel so empty? I have triumphed, but why can I feel, how come I feel so empty? I have succeeded in everything I've done, and yet I'm still missing something. That David, the greater than David, heard the cry of, of humanity, and you know what he did? He geared up. He broke through the lines in the incarnation. He came, and on the cross, he defeated evil. The cross was a war victory. It defeated evil. John tells us that it, it, by the work of the cross, he cast out the enemy. The ruler of this world was finally defeated, John chapter 10, I believe, says. But notice, let me, let me as David brought balance, let me bring balance too. How does God, how does Jesus, how does this warrior king how does he maintain, how does he on the one hand fight for what's right and go to war for those that he loves without destroying those that he loves? He, without destroying those that he loves. See, Jesus has this uncanny ability throughout the, throughout the scriptures to separate evil from the evildoers. It's this really amazing way of looking at humanity, of saying, no, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna strike evil and I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna save the evildoers. On the cross, he struck at evil itself. How? By serving the evildoers. By loving the evildoers. That's you and me. By dying for, see, so think of it this way. We all, okay, you all, we all have issues with other people. We've been hurt, they've been hurt. What's the tendency to do? To hate them back, right? That's human, to resent them. But what happens when you do that? My, this is uh, Noble right now. For some reason, he's really into Putin dying. He has, he, he, he's like, man, Dad, I'm going to throw a party and invite everybody when Putin dies. You know, and I get that. On a level, it's like, yeah, I get it. I understand that because he's causing a lot of people to die. Um, and I don't know, I do not read the news with Noble, just so you know. I don't know where, but anyway, this is coming up. And on the one hand, I understand that sense of justice. That's a warrior spirit. That's a, there's something wrong going on, and that guy is the genesis of it, and he needs to be put down for flourishing to happen again, for the world to be at peace again. On the one hand, that's true. But when you let that resentment in, what happens? It makes it worse, and you become like the person that you hate. You become like the person that you hate. Um, uh, Dickens' book, A Tale of Two Cities, is all about this. Where the, the, um, you know, the aristocrats in France are, com are committing horrible abuses of the underclass, 
The underclass gets so fed up with it and so hateful that they rise up, they overturn the aristocracy, and they put to the guillotine anybody that's even closely, even kind of related to the aristocracy. And in the process, they become just as evil, just as bad, just as oppressive, just as abusive, and even more so than the people that they started out hating. It perpetuates evil. That's why God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, because he's the only one that can handle it. How did he handle it? He went to the cross and he took the punishment that you and I deserve. What happens when we sacrifice ourselves for others? It stops the cycle. What happens when I fall on my own sword? What happens when I apologize for at least my bit and, and choose to forgive? When I say, you know what, you don't get it, you don't realize that, you, that what you've done is wrong, but I'm going to let that go and stop trying to convince you that you're wrong. I'm going to forgive you, and I'm going to move on. First of all, let me say this. Let, let's just clear the air here. Forgiveness is not easy. It's almost synonymous with suffering in the Bible. You cannot forgive unless you suffer. You don't know why? Because you're letting someone that hurt you you're choosing not to hold that against them anymore. That is suffering. I refuse. I'm no longer going to hold this against you. And I'm not going to demand payment back anymore. I'm letting you go. And boy, you want to feel death to self? Forgive someone. But at the same time, when you die and you sacrifice for someone, you have a shot at redemption. You end the cycle of evil. You know, the famous saying... Uh, you know, hating somebody else or resentment towards somebody else is like drinking poison and waiting for the other guy to die. It's true. When you hate someone, when you refuse to forgive, when you demand payment, you're taking on that evil into yourself. It's like drinking poison. What ends the cycle? Well, Jesus shows us. He, was at, he had beef with the world. He had beef with mankind. There was a war. How did he judge? The, how did he get rid of evil? How did, he, how did his warrior spirit de deal a death blow to evil? By sacrificing himself. He geared up, he broke through the lines, and he poured himself out, out as a drink offering on the cross for you and for me. You know what he said on the cross? One of the, his seven things that he said? I am thirsty. In other words, I'm, gonna become, I'm going to lack so that you can be full. I'm going to cut myself off from the fountain of life, from the river of, from the river of life, as, as Revelation calls it, so that you can come and drink to the full, drink it to the dregs, and be full in your own heart. You can have access to the only water source that will truly make you fulfilled. This goes into our, fi our final point. How does this change us? Well, we, we become warriors like our God is a warrior. Be careful with this, because in our world, we love to fight. We feel the injustice, especially on, no matter what side of the political aisle you're on. And, the, the, and our, our political candidates, now it's become commonplace to just, just hurl and destroy other people's character in fits of hatred and rage. 
And we as Christians can get sucked into this. We can get confused between being a follower of Jesus and our political party. And this goes to, wherever, again, no matter what side of the aisle you're on, and we can take up our warrior spirit and misapply it and add to the noise to the point where we're indistinguishable from anyone else. Huh. Now, look, I hope you hear the balance. Keep your warrior spirit. Do not bury your head in the sand. Jesus did something about the evil he saw. You do the same, absolutely. But look at the way he did it. He was able to deal with evil and spare the evildoer in love and grace and mercy. Love and grace and mercy. He was able to do that. Why? Through self-sacrifice. Jesus said, if anyone wants to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross every day, and follow me. That is how we are the light of the world. Ephesians chapter 6. Now this warrior language is applied to us. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, Paul says. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. You are warriors, the New Testament says. 1 Timothy 6.12, fight the good fight of faith, Paul says to Timothy. Fight! I want you guys to be fired up. Fight the good fight of faith. Absolutely. 2 Timothy 2.3, endure difficulty as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. The language is all about the church. But fight evil the way Jesus did, by pouring ourselves out for people. For loving people. Not vilifying them and wagging our fingers at them. Love them. Sacrifice. He came to punish evil by loving the people who were doing it. This is the way of Jesus, and this is, this is the radical way of the church. And this is the balance that we hold. This is how we are the light of the world and the salt of the earth. So, release blessings on your warrior spirit. Amen.